You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Matthew says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, I ask that you would come this morning. We trust and believe that where two or more are gathered together, that your presence is here. You've promised to be present with your, your church, your family, your bride. So we trust and believe that you are here. But God, we ask that you would come in a, in a special way this morning and that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Father, there are so many things on the surface of our hearts that could distract us from what you want to say to us. And we trust that your word is life-giving and transformative. So we beg you to come and do that work. Ask, Father, that you would give us your spirit, that you would illuminate this passage for a shine light on it, and by doing so, shine light deep into our hearts. Lord, there is like a war going on deep down inside of every one of our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would bring to light those places that you want to come and establish your kingship. Father, I pray that you would do that work. I pray, God, that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth over the next few moments, that you would use them to bring glory to your name to be helpful um, to us. pray that you would do that. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, just to uh, kind of give you uh, an idea of where we're headed over the next uh, few moments as we spend time in, in, in this passage, uh, I've entitled the, this message, uh, The War on Christmas. And it might sound like a funny, um, maybe a weird title. But uh, I hope that just by giving you the title of the message, that, that might help you to understand uh, where we're headed. Um, I know that uh, 
Christmas uh, is really a beautiful season, right? I mean, you look around uh, our church today, even with the lights and the bulbs and the trees and the, the poinsettias, that's what they're called. Um, beautiful, beautiful time. It's a time where we dress up, get together with family, lots of lights and uh, glitter. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful season, but it can also be a season of conflict. And you might ask why I'm going to draw our attention there. Um, number one, I'll say at the passage is full of conflict, isn't it? This season can be a season that's full of conflict for us, too, as humans, as, as Americans. And, and uh, um, I just want to enter into that conversation this morning. As I think about the conversations I've had um, with people in our church over the last week, and even with people in our community, as I'm out rubbing shoulders with people, um, as I think about the conversations that happen in our gospel communities, throughout the week, and as I think about conversations that take place in families, uh, I just want to enter into that conversation. And my hope is that what God would do through this message is that he would draw our attention and the eyes of our hearts off of things that appear to be the war, the fight that we need to fight, and that he would draw our attention to the things that are real underneath that inside of our hearts. That's an overview of where I hope to head this morning. So it's a beautiful season also be a season of conflict, right? People love to argue, don't we? Well, we'd love to argue in many different ways. See? See? We could argue about not liking to argue. People love to argue, and Christmas happens to give us many things to argue about, right? Um, got a list of a few things here that we love to argue about around Christmas. Uh, we love to argue about whether we should say Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas. This has been a conversation in our church uh, most recently, right? Um, we, love to argue, um, we love to argue about boycotting Starbucks. <laughs> We're not putting Merry Christmas on their cuffs. Uh, we we love, to, uh, love to argue about whether we should shop at Target or not. Love to argue about whether we should shop at Walmart or not. Clothes on Christmas. Anyways. Um, we argue about, uh, we, we debate like the real date of, of Jesus' birth, don't we? Like was he really born during this time or was he born at a different time? Love to argue and debate about that. We, we argue and debate about the significance of Christmas trees, don't we? Pontificate, that's a big word. Uh, we, Chris talked about that, but pontificating about the pagan origins of the holiday itself. I mean, if you're going to follow that bunny trail down just a little bit, I mean, I think just wet our whistle a little bit. If you think about this, uh, most scholars would say that December 21st or 25th, the day that we celebrate as Christmas, uh, December 25th in ancient Rome was known as the Dies Natale Invictus. Say that five times fast. A tongue twister. The, uh, December 25th was the Dies Natale Invictus. It was the, the birthday of the unconquered sun. Now, not unconquered sun as in son of a mom and dad, but unconquered sun as in sun, moon, stars. So that's what December 25th was in ancient uh, Rome. It was the day of the winter solstice. And at the same time in Rome on this day, it was the last day of something they called the Saturnalia, okay? uh, which had really long since degenerated into uh, a week of unbridled carnival. That's really what this day was then. Kind of sounds somewhat familiar if you think about the carnival side of it. Um, what we experienced during this time, a lot of times in America, right, and across the world. 
So all these things that I've just listed, these are a lot of reasons to go uh, to war with each other over Christmas. And then if you add to that the fact that, that we in America, we have a Christian heritage, right, in some regard, um, we have the freedom of speech in our back pockets right, because of our Constitution. Um, and so every time someone starts a debate about Christmas, you get this melting pot of what I would call Christian guilt. Um, and basically saying that, like, if you're a Christian, you better agree with me on this issue or that issue, and if you don't, you're out, right? Isn't that kind of some of the feeling that we get around Christmas oftentimes? Uh, of course, we also have social media to blast away on, which I enjoy doing uh, from time to time. I know many of you do, too. Uh, we got social media to blast away on and repost things and argue over and so on and so forth. So the war uh, on Christmas in our culture is definitely real. Now, I... I would assume, my assumption is, is that in this gathering today, there's two camps. There's some of you that are like, I really don't give a rip about any of that. I just want to do my thing on Christmas. And then there's others of you who really want to hotly debate and enter into those things, really passionate about them, right? And so I think part of my job this morning is just to kind of enter into that conversation. And, and to be fair, I have to admit that uh, I, do, uh, I do love a good fight. Okay. I do love to, a good fight. I love to argue. So it's so tempting for me to just stay here on some of those topics. Argue, fight, right? Take up our time. And I hope that you know I'm going to be snarky and sarcastic for at least one paragraph of what I have written here. Um, well, I can't guarantee that won't be the only time I'm snarky and sarcastic either. Um, but just for a minute, I just want to say that I am I'm absolutely certain from a sar sarcastic standpoint, absolutely, positively certain that the entire reason the gospel writers wrote their accounts of Jesus' birth was because of all of these things that I've just talked about. It's the entire reason they're there, right? I'm, <laughs> keep it going. I, I am absolutely certain that the implicit desire for the gospel writers was to equip Christians with the weapons for the culture war on Christmas, right? Yes, I said Christians. <laughs> totally blow it. But I'm absolutely certain that Jesus is like standing on the edge of the floor of heaven like, go team, right? Argue this out. This is what he wants. This is what he wants from us, isn't it? He's cheering us on every time we start this argument or engage it. This is what he believes brings honor and joy to him. I mean, if you look at the way that Christians today interact with each other, that's what you would believe about the God they serve, wouldn't it? So I hope you know I'm being snarky and sarcastic to make a point. And to be fair, I, like I said, I do love a good fight. So uh, it's tempting for me to continue arguing about every point that I've just drawn our attention to. But I have a responsibility. A responsibility as a believer. As a believer, my responsibility is to be under the authority of God's word, right? To be under the authority of God's word while drawing our attention to what captures the attention of our hearts. That's my aim today. And, and here's the deal. As I turned my attention to this Matthew passage with these things rolling around in my head. Um, I was actually kind of stunned 
to see that there really is a war on Christmas. The war on Christmas that began to take place a long time ago continues to take place today. We see pieces of it in this Matthew passage. But it might surprise many of us, it was surprising to me to see what's really going on in this story because Matthew's story of the war on Christmas is absolutely eye-opening, right? <clears throat> now, to be fair, uh, Matthew, uh, as well as none of the other of the gospel writers, actually use the term Christmas. The word doesn't show up in the Scriptures. It might surprise you to learn that the word Christmas is actually found absolutely nowhere in all the Bible. It's not there. You also can't find anyone in the Bible using the greeting Merry Christmas. Just don't. But, um, and, and this is a really important but. This is important for us to, to, to keep in our minds as we roll our way through the study of this passage. The word Christmas does have a meaning. And the meaning of the word Christmas is really important. Because the word Christmas um, does mean the sending of the Christ. The celebration of the sending of the Christ. That's the meaning of the word. So when we say Merry Christmas, we're actually saying Merry Sending of the Christ. And there are many people in this world uh, who would not claim the name of Christ. Many people in this world who live as enemies of Christ live at war with Christ, much like many of you and I used to and at times may still do. And therefore, we, we should not be surprised. We should not be offended when we're called to live in relationship with those folks while laying down our rights as American citizens at times. Think about our Savior who laid down His rights and went to a cross. That's the one we come to mimic. Right? The way that Jesus makes war against His enemies, and it doesn't look the same as the way we often make war against our enemies. Uh, instead of coming in hot, trying to win the culture war, Jesus actually comes in humility, in the form of a baby born in obscurity. Jesus wasn't concerned with winning political platforms to further his agenda, and he also didn't lobby for social reform unless you count the cross as his lobby for social reform. Right? And I would say that I believe the cross is the way that Jesus lobbied for political and social reform. Jesus is actually the hero of Christmas. Because Christmas means the sending of the Christ. He is the hero of Christmas who defeats his enemies by dying for villains. He's the king of the world for sure. But he's a different kind of a king than you or I would ever expect. He's the kind of king who makes earthly kings angry. He's the kind of a king who makes war on his enemies from a position of perceived weakness. And that's the story we pick up in Matthew. Because number one, 
Three things are happening in this story. Number one, Jesus' family is running to Egypt. Jesus' family is running to Egypt. Verses 13 through 15, the wise men complete their mission to come and to worship the baby king of the Jews and to give him gifts, and then they leave. Mary, Joseph, there when, when the wise men come and worship and give gifts, And after the wise men leave, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And he instructs Joseph to grab baby Jesus and his mother Mary and flee to Egypt. Why? He's going to flee, run away to Egypt. Because Herod is about to go on a killing spree throughout the region. In his unbridled attempt to destroy baby King Jesus before Jesus can take his throne. As if Jesus was actually concerned about a physical throne to begin with. Matthew also tells us that Joseph obeys the word of the Lord through the angel. He steals away under the cover of night to take refuge in Egypt until Herod's death. And all of this, I mean this is interesting, three times you see this word fulfilled pop up in the story that we read today. All of this is happening to be the fulfillment of something that the the prophets had prophesied. And they had prophesied that a a Messiah, a Christ baby, would come to set us free from our slave masters. So make no mistake, Jesus comes in this season to set us free from the slavery that seeks to defeat us. So stop for a minute. And I want you to write this word down somewhere. Write the word defeat down. Stick it in your head. Put it on your phone. Write that word defeat. Think about that for a minute. Because Jesus comes to set us free from the slavery that seeks to defeat us. But he defeats our enemies in a radically different way than we would ever expect. Number two, as you move forward in the story, you see King Herod waging war against Jesus. Verses 16 through 18, what Matthew does is he shifts his focus. Uh, Baby King Jesus has, has been preserved by the sovereign providence of our Heavenly Father through the words of an angel, through the obedience of human parents. He's safe in Egypt, right? So Matthew shifts his focus uh, onto this evil king named Herod. And what we find in Herod is an absolutely evil, despicable man. He becomes so furious, so angry with being deceived by the wise men that he goes on a murderous rampage, killing every little boy under the age of two throughout the region of Bethlehem. Think about this. This is what we're celebrating. As horrifying as this thought is, as atrocious as that event was, that evil, atrocious, fearful, scary event, it happened as a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. God actually knew that this horror was going to happen, and not just knew, but ordained it to happen. 
Let that mess with our minds for a minute. It's the fulfillment of ancient prophecy that would help to set the scene for how serious this war against Christmas really is. Babies are being born under the age of two, being ripped out of their mother's arms in the front yard in front of their houses, being murdered right in front of them. That's what's happening in this season. Feel the weight of that horror and fear. Devastation throughout that region, I think, would have been unprecedented. It's a serious thing. A fear, a depression, doubt, a worry. Anybody here ever feel defeated by those things? Ever feel the, the depth of fear and the depth of depression and the, de- the depth of doubt and the depth of worry and anxiety to the extent that you feel defeated by it? Where you can feel it with every ounce of your being. Those feelings would have been palpable in that nation, in that region. You would have felt it, you would have experienced it in the weeping and the crying of families amidst the screams of their babies being murdered in front of them. This is a serious thing. Make no mistake, it's more more serious than you may imagine. When you think about it this way, my sin and your sin is what caused Jesus to come into this world. My sin and your sin is what caused Jesus to enter into this world as a baby who was being hunted by a ruthless earthly king in this time. My need, your need, our need to have our sin paid for. It affected the lives of families that you and I have never met. It caused them to endure the horror of their sons being murdered right in front of them. Let the weight of our sin sink in. Our sin affects others in a more deeply devastating way than I think most of us, especially in this Christmas season, are willing to admit. Because we'd rather talk about things that have nothing to do with this, wouldn't we? It's much easier to argue about things that have no eternal value rather than pausing for a moment and reflecting on the weight of my sin. Number three, we see Jesus' family uh, hiding in obscurity. (coughs) Verses 19 through 23, King Herod dies. Thank God! (sighs) Dies. Now, according to scholars, there are at least six different Herods mentioned in the Bible. And the most memorable one for me, I think, is the one in the book of Acts because we studied it for an awful long time, whose death was attributed by being eaten by worms. Uh, this is not the same Herod. Sounds like a nasty way to go, and it also sounds like a, um, 
Sounds like a good payment for the kind of man that he was. Um, but I don't think this is the same. Herod, according to the biblical record here, um, different Herod, he does die, thank God. Regardless, after his death, an angel directs Joseph to come out of hiding in Egypt and to return to Israel. And upon arrival, Joseph learns that one of Herod's sons is the new ruler of the region. So after being warned in a dream, he moves his family to a small insignificant village called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Now this would be similar, you want to, you want to ask a question like, okay, I don't, I don't understand why. This would be similar to you or I wanting to move our family to Hastings, find out that it's an unsafe place, so we move to a place like Harvard, okay? or Blue Hill, or Donovan, or Trumbull. We moved to a small town outside of the larger town because it's more safe. And again, this too was to fulfill ancient prophecy. What was the ancient prophecy? Ancient prophecy basically stated the baby king would make war for the freedom of his people from a position of obscurity, not from Trump Tower. From a position of obscurity is where our king would war for our freedom. He set himself up in a position of perceived weakness and obscurity. Now, why does this story matter? That's the turn for us. We, we know the story now. Why does the story matter? What's the significance? Listen, here's the thing. Step back from the story um, just 10, 15 feet. When you think about how all of what we've just talked about fits into the broader narrative of all the scripture and this is where theology matters this is where slow study of god's word matters for us we oftentimes want to to do the blind we want to do that we want to jump around skip around uh, but there's 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 a reason for just the slow study of god's word theology matters so when you step back and you look at the broad narrative and kind of the highlights of the Bible, there is a way that this small story we're studying fits in with it. As I've said, Jesus doesn't win the war by winning debates. He doesn't try to win political campaigns. <coughs> Jesus wins the war. How? Jesus wins the war with two trees that he actually created as the very people whom he had also created in his image and came to save are nailing him to those trees. That's, that's the center of the story, correct? Now, now move, that's a gospel-centered approach to the reading of the Bible. Now, if you move that out, brief survey of the scriptures reveals that there has been a war on the sending of the Christ, Christmas, from the very beginning that will last until the end. The story of the serpent in Genesis, back towards the beginning of your Bibles. That's the story of the war on the sending of the Christ. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would be at war, enmity with one another until the end. Cain and Abel, we see them next in the story, go to war against each other, so to speak. Cain murders Abel. That's an extension of the war of the sending of the Christ. You see Pharaoh. Jump forward to Pharaoh, enslaving Israelites in Egypt. That story is, is an extension of the very same war on the sending of the Christ. King Herod, in our passage, what's this? That's the very same thing. It's a story of the war on the sending of the Christ. Look at persecution in the book of Acts. 
That's an extension of the same war. The dragon in the book of Revelation, now that we've worked our way to the end, right? That's an extension of that very same war on the sending of the Christ. Ephesians, many other places of Scripture describe the spiritual war on the sending of Jesus as our Savior. The world we live in is a broken place, and it's caught in the middle of a war. Oftentimes, we want to make ourselves the point of that war. Jesus and the work that he was going to do at the cross and the empty tomb is actually the point of the center of that war. Tempting thing for each of us to do is to enter into that war zone and fight the wrong battles. And I already admitted I really love a good fight. I don't love unhealthy conflict. Um, I don't like to fight just to fight, although I guess I should probably confess that sometimes I do like to fight. Okay, all right, yes. Anybody else with me? Want to join, join the crowd? Please don't leave me. Hey, okay, you love to fight just to fight, okay? Need to confess. But you know that same sin of just loving to do that? You know what that did? Created a place where there was a cross with a Savior hanging on it, okay? And, and a situation where there were families out in their front yards in this. That's what we celebrate is the coming of the Christ, the sending of the Christ into the horror of this world. The picture of those families in their front yards where their babies are being murdered, that's a picture of the seriousness of our sin and the need for a Savior. That's what we celebrate. I don't like to lose. Losing doesn't seem appealing to me. Winning actually feels like progress. Anybody else here like to lose? So defeat, defeat feels like a slow death, doesn't it? Christmas season and all of its beauty, all of its sparkle, all of its glitter can bring about a sense of defeat for many people. For all of the American commercialization of Christmas, there can still be an underlying sense of defeat and despair for many of us. I mean, think about this. We run around like crazy in this season, don't we? Can't that feel like defeat sometimes? We spend way too much money on unneeded things in this season, don't we? That's defeat too, isn't it? Families experience more conflict in this season than any other time of the year. That's defeat, isn't it? Churches oftentimes lose sight of what's important in this season. Could it be that we just need a fresh perspective? Could it be uh, that in a world that is caught up in one hot debate after the next over the stupidest things, could it be that we need a fresh perspective? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if the church at large could have a conversation that didn't reflect the world's preoccupation with polarizing arguments? How refreshing would it be to walk into a church or to walk into a gospel community where believers are applying the truths of the sending of the Christ to their hearts and lives? What would it look like for us to do this in a transformative way? Rather than having the same old worldly conversations about whose views trump the other person's views while repackaging all of that in Christian language. This is Christmas. It should weigh heavily on us on the one hand and bring about a sense of joy and celebration on the other. What if Christians, uh, what if we as Christians stopped arguing about what we need to preserve? And instead, we started talking about and proclaiming what can never be taken away from us. 
I know, I know what some in our country and some in the Christian circle might say. They might say, well, um, because I know what can never be taken away from me, now I can argue about what needs to be preserved. No, I, no. What if we just started living out this truth that we have something that can never be taken away from us? Wouldn't that change the dialogue we have in our country? Wouldn't that be transformative rather than combative? Because the only person I see that's being combative in this passage is King Herod. See, the truth of the story of the saying of the Christ is meant to set you free from what you used to be defeated by. It's meant to set you free from the fight that you fear losing. See, where you once were defeated by your fear, the truth of the sending of the Christ is meant to set you free to live in peace. Where you once were defeated by your addictions, the truth of the sending of the Christ is meant to set you free to live in holiness. Where you once were defeated by your depression, the truth of the sending of the Christ is meant to set you free to live in joy-filled worship. I don't know where every one of you are at as you walked in here today. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know what defeats you. I don't know what sense of defeat you walked in the door trying to either wrestle and fight against or cover up and hide from. I don't know. There are three things I do know in conclusion that I want to leave you with. Number one, every one of us struggles with defeat. So where do you feel defeated today? As many of us struggle with things like loneliness and depression, anger and despair, boredom or lust, envy, bitterness, busyness, fear or worry, the list can go on and on. One of us struggles with a sense of defeat somewhere. So where are you walking around in defeat right now? What kind of defeat did you walk in the door with? Secondly, every one of us has a very real enemy, right? We have a very real enemy who is seeking to steal our joy, kill our intimacy with God, to destroy the image of God in us. Satan is literally working overtime, round the clock to defeat us. That's what Satan does. He he comes at you by enticing your inner desires and by tempting you through the world's values and by influencing you through demonic oppression. He's an enemy. Every one of us has a very real enemy who is seeking our defeat. The question is, where are you living in defeat this Christmas season? Number three, I find it much joy to proclaim to you that we have a God And his name is Jesus. And he is undefeated. Can somebody say amen? We have a God. His name is Jesus and he is undefeated. He is the reigning champ. He was sent to this earth to be born in the flesh. To live. To die. To be raised from the dead. To leave the tomb empty. To ascend to heaven. To the throne of God. And he is returning as the reigning champ 
undefeated, reigning undefeated champion to do what? To gather his family from the clutches of evil and to deliver us safely into the presence of the Father in heaven. Our Savior is undefeated. There's nothing else to debate, is there? Is there? He's undefeated. Why don't you live in that? What would that look like? When you look at the world, man, the world that we live in, it's appropriate to mourn the devastation. It's appropriate to mourn the horror of the effects of Satan's sin and death. It's appropriate to do so. It's appropriate to oppose evil. It's appropriate to resist persecution. Here's the thing. I fear for us as Christians. Oftentimes our opposition to evil, our resistance of persecution, looks more like Christian pride. We pat ourselves on the back for not being as lukewarm as that other guy over there or as evil as that other guy, girl across the street. My prayer is that that wouldn't be us. It is hard for us to live in this world because we are aliens in this world once you come to Jesus. And on the one hand, we have a responsibility as Christians to uphold, to live out our faith in the midst of a world that we are aliens in and to live differently. And yet on the other hand, there's also a responsibility for us to live like our Savior did who laid down His rights. There's a tension between those two things. And there's only one person that will enable you to figure out how to live that with wisdom and humility and respect in the middle of a world that's at war. His name is Jesus, and He left us His Spirit. And we need to be Spirit-led people. My prayer is that we would be known as Spirit-led people who live peaceably and lovingly in our community because we rest in the truth that the war on Christmas has been won. It's been won. The real battle for each of us now is to live from a place of victory, not defeat. In a place of victory over Satan, sin, and death. Why? Because our Savior, the Christ who was sent into this world during this time, is undefeated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come the next few moments and bring the truth of your son's broken body and shed blood to bear upon what we've just heard. Bring us back to the cross. Bring us back to the empty tomb. And remind us that Jesus was sent into this world in the midst of darkness and despair and hurt and pain. Help us to rest our weary, broken, pain-filled, sin-infected lives in the shadow of that cross, in the doorway of that empty tomb. Pray that in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.